Well, welcome back this morning. My original ambition was to make it from chapter 9, verse 6 to verse 19. We may or may not make it. We'll see what happens. But either way, uh, welcome back. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will uh, have a very brief review, and we'll pick back up in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is a privilege to be counted as your adopted children. We thank you that you approach us in love, that you have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that you yourself, by your Spirit, have taught us that you make your words come alive, that you send them out for the purpose that you have sent them, and they always accomplish your good purpose. And so we thank you for our ability to participate in hearing and learning your word this morning. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, lead us and guide us, that we may walk before you in greater joy and in greater integrity and in greater faith. We pray that you would give us these blessings, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 9, we left off last week uh, covering verse 6, but only briefly covering verse 6. The challenge with going through a book like Deuteronomy is Moses has a multi-chapter argument going on, and we have to continually leave and come back to that argument because we can't cover three chapters very well uh, in the course of 50 minutes or even less than that. So a very brief review to set the stage for what we're looking at this morning. Moses is in his great sermon, his second great sermon of the book of Deuteronomy, which will go for a very long time yet. He is teaching Israel how to live out the first commandment, and he explains it as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next thing he does in his argument is he tries to build Israel's motivation for loving the Lord, and he does it through primarily refuting three false ideas that Israel might have about herself. The first one is that God chose Israel and loves them not because of any great qualities that they themselves had, and the one he picks out is not because of your great numbers the Lord chose you. He doesn't look for any earthly advantage that they had but it simply is a result of God's love for Israel and that he chose their fathers. So it is not because of Israel that God chose and loved them. loves them. The second one is God will bless Israel, again, not because of Israel's strength, power, or wisdom. Everything that the Lord is going to do for Israel, the Lord does not because of who Israel is. And the third one is God will give Israel the land not because of Israel's righteousness. Rather, he drives out the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And so there is nothing that the Israelites have to commend themselves to the Lord in order for what they are going to have. And what Moses is doing here is he is impressing upon Israel her need for humility. Humility we might simply define as recognizing who we are before the Lord. And three times Moses says, not because of you, not because of you, not because of you. 
And now this last one, not because of your righteousness, he's going to take uh, over the course of a chapter to draw out that argument and give evidence, we might even say proof, that Israel lacks any righteousness to commend herself to the Lord. And that is where we pick it up in chapter 9, verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. That's the thesis, if you want to call it that, of chapter 9. That is the grand argument Moses is making, and he's going to give now his evidence for that statement. Why do you call Israel a nation who is not righteous and who is a stubborn people? Moses is going to review Israel's history And we might point out right here at the beginning that it is rather ironic that Moses, in giving the Lord's assessment, says, you are a stiff-necked people. And yet, despite Israel's 40 years of wandering, because of their wickedness and their rebellion, they are still inclined to say, the Lord drove out these nations because of my righteousness. That's how deep the stiff neck goes. 40 years of misery in the wilderness is not enough to evict from their hearts the thought that they are a righteous people. That is stubborn. And that's um, worth noting, I think, here before we move on. The other thing is that one of the most important qualities for a Christian to possess, if we are among God's people, one of the most important qualities that we can possess is that of accurate spiritual self-understanding. We are to know ourselves more than we are to know anyone or anything else. And this flies in the face of modern thinking, that Moses would start off with telling his congregation, you are a stubborn, literally stiff-necked people. Modern thinking is that hurts the psyche, right? Uh, That damages one's... uh, self-understanding, it causes psychological damage. We shouldn't tell people that, that they are stubborn and stiff-necked, that they are sinful, that God hates sin and those who practice it. In our day and age, when we think we have to build up one's ego or build up one's self-understanding, Moses gives us something quite the opposite. And that is, True spiritual self-understanding. Very briefly here, it's worth going to Psalm 51. Because that thought is hit very well. And we are given good words for it in the prayer of Psalm 51. Just the first six verses of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is the prayer of someone who borders on despondency. Um, He sounds depressed. And it would seem like what he needs to hear is, no, no, you're not that sinful. That's not what the psalmist has as his own self-understanding. 
Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That's an odd thing, perhaps, to follow on this confession, but for the psalmist to confess the depth of his sin and then to say, you delight in truth in the inward being. I take that inward truth primarily to be the recognition of his own sin. It is a self-understanding that is true to revelation and God's assessment of us, which is you are a deeply sinful and wicked people, stubborn, stiff-necked, and that the Lord teaches him wisdom in the secret heart. That is the Lord impressing on him those facts and the Lord's mercy that stands there nonetheless. And so we, as Christians, ought to never fear to think of ourselves in what appear to be the degraded terms that Scripture uses for humanity. Let those truths sink in. Because hearing of our sinfulness is what tills the soil and prepares it for the seeds of the gospel. And that's what Moses does in the hearts of the Israelites here, aims to do in the hearts of the Israelites. And notice, too, that Moses spends virtually no time talking about the sinfulness of the surrounding nations. He mentions it. No, it's because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out. He illustrates the wickedness of the nations by repeatedly alluding to their idolatry. But he never makes an argument that the nations are wicked or why they're wicked. He just assumes that Israel understands that. And all of the time he makes arguing about one's sinfulness, it's to convince the Israelites that they are an unrighteous people. So he he goes to town and works against the sins of his people and scantly mentions the sins of the nations around them. That is a model that we are to follow in the church as well. We preach against the sins of our people, not against the sins of the culture primarily, though they definitely need to be mentioned as well lest we fall into it. And Moses does that too with idolatry. Moving on from verse 6 into verse 7. Two commandments here that Moses gives the people. Remember and do not forget. What is it that they are to remember? And what is it they are not to forget? How you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. So what Israel is to remember, above all, is their provocation of the Lord through rebellion. And Moses, in verse 7, just gives a broad overview of their history. He doesn't mention any specifics. But in the rest of verse 7, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt... Until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Before they were even established as a covenant people, the Lord, or the people rebelled against the Lord. But in verse 8, that isn't where Moses lands. He takes them rather to the epitome of Israel's rebellion in verse 8. Even at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, 
You provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So Israel is to remember, do not forget. Both of those commands um, are in the singular. Uh, We cannot see it in English because English does not differentiate between the singular you and the plural ye, if you have King James. Um, But this here is distinguished. Verse 7, you remember and you do not forget how you as a nation provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you as a nation came out of the land of Egypt until you, singular as a nation, came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, ye provoked the Lord to wrath. He changes from the singular in verse 7 to the plural in verse 8. Y'all at Horeb provoked the Lord to wrath. And I've mentioned this a couple of different weeks we've ran into it. But it's worth drawing out again here because it's very pointed. And that is Moses attributes the sin of the previous generation to this generation. That's what he's doing when he switches from the singular you to the plural you. And we can put it maybe in this context. If I were a Brit, a a British individual speaking to an American, I could perhaps say to that American, you know, when your country was founded, you engaged in a lot of slavery. You as a nation did that sort of thing, right? But now it would be very different if he looked at me and if, if I, as the British, looked at you and your spouse and said, you two had slaves. That's very different, right? And what Moses is doing here is he's making that switch from you as a nation did this sort of thing to you all did this. That's what he's doing in verse 8. And it would seem to be an odd thing to do because very few, if any, of these individuals would have been alive at the sin of Horeb. If they were, they were under 20. So if they were above 40 years old, they, weren't, they were there, likely, but not as uh, a responsible participant, we might say. All of the responsible participants died, except perhaps Caleb. We don't know about him. Joshua was up on the mount with Moses. So Joshua and Moses did not engage in the sin of Horeb. Caleb, we don't know. Everyone else was not held responsible for the sin of Sinai. Yet Moses says, y'all provoked the Lord to anger at Horeb. Why does he do that? I'll give you two reasons. One, part of what the nation is to remember is the heart of the individuals who comprise that nation. Israel, as a singular entity, is to know what is the heart of the people who make up this nation of the Lord. And a people who fails to recognize that individuals tend to rebel against righteousness is a nation who is unprepared to deal righteously with anybody or to deal particularly well with unrighteous people because they're going to assume it's by my righteousness that the Lord gave me this. We're all basically good, right? 
And the Lord is saying, no, that's not you. You are not basically good. We might make it more particular and say that a people who fails to recognize that we as individuals naturally tend to rebel against righteousness ends up being a church that is incompetent to rightly present the gospel because the foundation or the prerequisite to a good understanding of the gospel is a recognition of sin and that that is the natural condition of the human heart. And people who tend to forget that in the church world tend to become smug and self-righteous, just as the Israelites were. It was because of our righteousness the Lord gave us this land. No, it was not. What happens here in this switch to the plural in verse 8, this makes the connection to verses 4 and 6 very plain. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of the other nations. They are to know that who they are as a people and what they have become as a people once they inherit the land is not because of anything in them. It's because the Lord has done good things on their behalf, despite what they deserve. The second thing, second reason I think for the switch, is that as individuals, the group has perverted hearts and the sins of the previous generations will be imputed to this generation if they continue on in the same sins. Let's put it this way. Moses says, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until now, you've been rebellious against the Lord. What were the things that Israel did to rebel against the Lord before Sinai? Well, they distrusted the Lord's provision. They grumbled against the Lord. So often... uh, there was unique provisions. They, they distrusted the Lord when they got to the sea. They grumbled against the Lord when they hungered, and so the Lord fed them manna. All of the distrust and the grumbling that marked Israel before Sinai marked Israel throughout their years in the wilderness as well. Not only that, but Moses here is focusing on the sin of Horeb, the idolatry of the golden calf. This generation engaged in the exact same sin with Baal of Peor 40 years later. They are on the cusp of the promised land. And the Moabites, who they intentionally didn't fight because the Lord told them not to, wanted to see Israel fail at the task. Balaam comes along and tells Moab, after he fails to curse them, seduce them sexually and lead them into idolatry. Cause them to forsake the Lord through sexual immorality and they will come to your feasts and they will worship your idols. And it worked. The previous generation committed idolatry at Sinai. This generation committed idolatry at Baal Peor. The sins of the previous generation are reproduced and culminated in this generation. So let's go to Luke 11, verses 48 to 51. Luke 11, starting in verse 48. We'll start in verse 47. It kind of bleeds in from that. So Luke 11, starting in verse 47. Woe to you, 
This is Jesus speaking. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. You are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. As Jesus says that, he doesn't mean to say, all of those who killed Zechariah and the prophets before him get away scot-free. No, they received judgment for what they did. But what they did is added to this generation because they do the same thing and more given the greater revelation they have and the same deeds they carry out. And so what's happening here back in Deuteronomy 9, verse 8, when he switches to the plural, he's saying you have engaged in the exact same sins as your father, but it's worse for you because you've even had greater revelation. So when Moses says you rebelled at Horeb, Horeb is just the epitome of Israel's rebellion, which has been engaged in from day one until this very day. So Moses throws the chronology out of balance, perhaps, but he's making the theological point. You are as rebellious as the previous generation. You have engaged in all of the sins, and I want to illustrate for you the perversity of your rebellion And I'm going to do it by looking to Sinai, where had you been alive, you would have done the exact same thing. And we know it because you've done the exact same thing in different circumstances. And so that switch uh, is very powerful as Moses does it. Then Moses, in verse 9, will go on and start to recount the story, but we'll pause here. Any thoughts or questions up to this point? Okay. Well, very good. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. We will pick it up in verse 9. I'm going to read actually verses 9 to 14 uh, because there's some themes we want to pick out here uh, rather than necessarily doing the same walk uh, line by line. So, verses 9 to 14. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, that they they have made themselves a metal image. 
Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mighty, mightier and greater than they. So going up to verse 9, there are two times that Moses refers to these tablets of stone, one in verse 9 and one in verse 11. Moses in both verses calls them the tablets of stone, and then he qualifies that and calls them the tablets of the covenant. Keep that in mind, and we'll come back to that. But moving on in verse 9, Moses adds a personal element to it here that the Lord made with you, or maybe that's more of a legal um, connotation, that the Lord made with you. And again, the you is plural, just like it was in verse 8. So this generation is in the same covenant as their, as their parents were. And what Moses does in verses 9 to 11 is he brackets this whole section as kind of a summary. So verse 8, as at Horeb you provoked the Lord, verses 9 and following is what did that provocation look like? And Moses frames all of his time on the mountain between verses 9 and 10. So Moses draws out his time on the mountain then in verse 9, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And then verse 10, he reiterates again, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now here we have two perspectives on the tablets. They are described first as the tablets of the covenant, two times, and in between them they are referred to as the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So now there are two perspectives. One is a sort of legal perspective. It is the covenant that the Lord made with you. They are the Lord's statutes and rules that Israel agreed to live by in covenant with this Lord. The other thing it is, it is is a very personal connection with the Lord. These tablets are written with the finger of God. They have, as it were, his signature on it as uh, he wrote it. How many of you as couples have ever kept a handwritten note that your loved one wrote you? Or if your parents, say, were to write you a letter, um, is very near and dear. And partly it's simply the fact of having their handwriting. And there is a personal communication that is carried along in that note. It's this person who meant a lot to me, wrote something, and delivered it to me. That has a, a deeply personal element to it. And so both the legal and the personal are represented here. What that means is breaking the covenant is not breaking some ethereal standard. It's not some abstract rule that Israel is breaking. It is an offense against a person with whom they are in sort of a marriage relationship with. In fact, it would not be inappropriate to liken the two tablets to a marriage contract. You know, you marry, you get married, you sign the document, both spouses' signatures are on it, you've agreed to the terms that have just been expressed in the vows, and, and there you have it. That is something that can be personally meaningful. The other thing to, net, to mention quickly is that healthy relationships can only exist in an environment where there are rules set in place, 
and those rules are obeyed. Rules are a condition for healthy relationships. Think of your best friend and think of what your best friend really doesn't like. And if you were to say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway, that person probably wouldn't remain your best friend for long. There are rules to be followed in any relationships. The Lord, in his grace, gave us in writing, we might even say in stone, the rules that make him happy and the rules that make him angry. That is in his own handwriting. If you want to be in a blessed relationship with the Lord, look to what he has written down. So that personal element is drawn out. Then by calling the tablets those that contain the handwriting of God. And he goes on and adds to that personal element in verse 10. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of assembly. So there's uh, a lot, actually, uh, that goes in there, but that's personal touch. We'll end by looking at verse 11 one more time here, and then we'll, we'll pause and take a little rabbit trail, a brief one. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. A lot happened during those 40 days. Why did it take Moses 40 days on the mountain? Does God write that slow? Um, I don't think so. I think there was more than that going on. On your handout this morning, I gave you a section of my notes. There's just a chunk of it there. And that's because there are so many references here in Exodus. Let's flip back to Exodus, by the way, that we can't look at everything that's there. And so I've just summarized the sections for you. So I'm basically simply going to read the notes that I handed to you so that we can kind of all follow where we are. In Exodus chapter 20, and if you can turn there in your Bibles, all the better, because then you can see it on the page a little bit more. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, God speaks to Moses and all Israel is gathered and they hear the communication between the Lord and Moses. Those are the Ten Commandments that Moses in Deuteronomy here just called all of the words that he spoke with you on the mount. Right? That's what it is in Deuteronomy, in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. That is also why Moses calls it in Deuteronomy 9, verse 10, the day of assembly. It's when all Israel was gathered together and they heard what the Lord was saying. In Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20, Israel reacts to the Lord's voice in fear, and they ask Moses to mediate for them, and Moses begins to do so in verse 21. Now in Exodus 20, the rest of it, all the way to the end of Exodus 23, so flip to the end of Exodus 23, those chapters are called the Book of the Covenant. That is the Lord speaking privately to Moses giving instructions for Israel's way of life. Let's go now to Exodus 24, and we're going to read the first two verses. Exodus 24, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron. And I, I think Moses is supposed to be on the mount at this point, and the Lord is 
cut out the directions, go down. I think that's just kind of assumed. So he says, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come up to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. What that seems to me to be is Moses has just received all of the instructions, and he is to go back down and bring up certain individuals of the people of Israel to cut the deal, as it were, with the Lord. Because in the next few verses, verses 3 to 8, what happens is Moses tells Israel, here's the covenant, do you agree, yes or no? And Israel responds, yes, we agree. Moses sprinkles the blood on them, and then they go on from there. But I want to point out verse 4. So Exodus 24, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. What did Moses write down that the Lord didn't write down? Pretty much everything the Lord spoke in Exodus 20 to 23 that isn't the Ten Commandments. That's called the Book of the Covenant. And Moses says, do you agree to this Book of the Covenant, yes or no? Israel says, we agree, all that the Lord has said we will do. Moses sprinkles the blood on them. He takes the elders and Aaron and the priests who will become the priests up on mountain. And they have a fellowship meal. So verse 12 of Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. That I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for your instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. So this is the picture. The people said, We agree to the covenant. The elders, 70 of the elders, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, they go up on the mountain with Moses. They have a fellowship meal. They seem to be midway on the mountain, and the Lord calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And he tells Aaron and the elders, remain here, wait for us. We're going to go up into the cloud. They go up into the cloud, and it's that point that Moses remains on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. When the covenant is made, they do not yet have the tablets of stone. Moses is taking those tablets up with him, when he goes up there to converse with the Lord for 40 more days. And as the text of Exodus lays out that chronology, those next 40 days are Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. Forty days of receiving instructions about the tabernacle. That's what Exodus would seem to appear to give. Because at the end of Exodus 31, in verse 18, this is what we read. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. They agree to the covenant. Moses spends roughly 40 days on the mountain receiving instructions for how Israel 
can fellowship with the Lord through the tabernacle. You want to know how you can commune with a holy God? He's going to give you a way to do it. He's going to provide a way for his people to have fellowship with the creator of heaven and earth who redeemed them from the land of Egypt, who's going to give them a land of their own. And what is Israel doing while Moses is receiving this glorious instruction? He's up there a long time. Maybe we should make a calf. It's exactly what they do. So at the end of those 40 days, the Lord tells Moses to go back down. Let's go back now to Deuteronomy chapter 9 because it picks up fairly well on the chronology, Israel would have remembered all of that. Israel would have remembered what Moses was doing on the 40 days. We don't always remember what Moses was doing those 40 days. But Israel would have. So when we come to verse 12 of Deuteronomy 9, that picks up. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. So God showed himself, the Lord of life, for sustaining Moses through 40 days and nights of fasting. Israel is making an idol that needs to be served by human hands. They're making a God who needs their help rather than preparing to worship the God who gives them life. That is why God gives the assessment of them in verse 13. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. As Israel's pastor, Moses is not venting his frustration primarily against the people up in verse 6 when he says, you are a stubborn people. He uses the same words that the Lord used of them. Moses is giving them the Lord's assessment of them, not primarily his. So, not only have they proven resistant to Moses, but they've also proven resistant to the Lord uh, as well. The image here is one of a plow animal whose strength is seen to be in its neck, but refuses to be steered. It just keeps going in the direction it wants to go, and you can't do anything with the animal. So the Lord tells Moses, verse 14, Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. That's the exact same thing he's preparing to do for the Canaanites uh, in, in Israel's time here. Uh, Israel is going to face the same destruction as the Canaanites because they live like the Canaanites. So Moses, uh, the Lord tells Moses, let go of me. Um, Permit me to destroy this people. Let me alone. uh, As is almost asking Moses' permission to be left alone, that he may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, And then he follows that up with an incentive for Moses. I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Now this is a subtlety. Um, But what's not subtle is the Lord's identification of Moses and the people up in verse 12. So if we go up to verse 12 real quick. 
Arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt. Why does the Lord do that? (laughs) Um, Possibly to distance himself from the sin of the people, but I don't think that's why he does it. I think what he's doing is he is reminding Moses that Moses bears a responsibility for this people. Moses ought not to be able in good conscience to just say, you're on your own. Moses, you brought this people up. Moses, I've entrusted them to you. What are you going to do with this wayward people? If that sounds like a stretch, we could go over to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 15. Paul was under the same frame of mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul feels a certain obligation to the Corinthians, as he does to all all his um, churches that he has engaged in heavily. Because he is an apostle, he has an obligation set on him to see to the spiritual health of the people God has entrusted to him, you might say. Similar thing in Galatians 4, verse 19. I'll quickly read it to you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And you will remember that Paul is the one who said, Who has bewitched you, Galatians? So Paul feels a certain obligation for the Galatians and for the Corinthians, and for all of those to whom he writes his letters. And what the Lord is doing in Deuteronomy is saying, they're the people you brought up. That's not denying the Lord's responsibility in bringing them up, or the Lord's, uh, who is the one, is the ultimate one who brought them up. This is the only time in Deuteronomy it's not mentioned that way. But it's not mentioned that way at this point precisely because Moses is acting as their mediator, and the Lord is saying, you do have a responsibility for this people. Continue to mediate for them. And that comes through again in a little bit more subtle way here in verse 14 when he says, Permit me, let me alone, loosen your grip that I may destroy them. So he's almost coaxing Moses into interceding on behalf of the people. And by doing this, the Lord is indicating that he only hesitantly destroys the wicked. He has no pleasure in that. He's not trigger happy waiting for the people of Israel to stumble. Rather, he has a strong predilection for mercy, but we ought not test the Lord's natural predilection for mercy by our natural predilection to rebel. Don't live according to our tendencies. Take advantage of the Lord's tendency. And so this becomes a test for Moses as well. We have a lot more we could say, but we have time bearing down on us. Any thoughts or questions here in closing? Right, so is there a connection between Moses' 40 days on the mountain and Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness? To which I would say, yes, I think there is. Uh, Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness serves at least two purposes 
um, in terms of typology. One is he shows himself the true Israel. Where Israel failed in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus made it himself for a similar 40, which is 40 days. His fasting in those 40 days, I believe it's the account of Luke, says that the angels were ministering to him, where he was being upheld uh, to a certain degree by the Lord's grace. And no doubt in that season of fasting and prayer, uh, he had deep fellowship with the Lord, um, which is also, I think, what sustains him through his times of trial, as Israel was supposed to have during those 40 years as well. Um, But just as Moses is on the mountain 40 days, um, experiencing fellowship with the Lord. I think Jesus uh, has the same or a similar sort of thing during his 40 days in the wilderness. Great question. Anything else? Moses' own brother Aaron turned out to be the leader of the rebellion of the golden calf. I mean, the highest possible level of experience with yeah, so uh, he just brings out that uh, Aaron himself failed. That's a great observation. We haven't gotten there in the text yet, but Moses will specifically say, I also prayed for Aaron at that time too. So he singles him out. And we'll look next week why Aaron is worth singling out in that instance. Remember, the, the Levitical priesthood hasn't been established yet. That gets established after the golden calf, um, partly as a result of it. But Aaron still has a unique status. Um, and so we'll, we'll look at that next week. Yeah. Yes, Moses' sister Miriam is a part of the the group here. Yep, she doesn't die for um, nearly another forty years. Um, at least the way Numbers presents it, they have the death of Marion, uh, then Aaron, and then Moses right before they enter the Promised Land. When in their wanderings she died, I don't know. Um, but we, the way Numbers lays it out, it appears as though it's closer to when they enter the land. So she sticks around for quite some time yet. So um, Aaron and Nadab, they were all supposed to, they all were halfway up. So at some point they went back down. Is that, is that against what God wanted? Or do we know anything about, like apparently he went down? And... Yeah, so the question is about what happens with Aaron and his son, two sons, and the rest of the elders. Do they stay halfway up? Do they go down? Was that rebellion? I have the exact same question. I don't know. Um, the, the text seems to just kind of skip over that. Um, it appears as they were supposed to remain, but again, it's not explicit, so I'm, I'm hesitant to give any judgment on that. Great question. All right. Well, thank you. I will plan to see you next week. <laughs>